Super. So our three-week series is on the Word of God, the Word. Today, we're going to be talking about trusting the Bible. Can we? Why should we? And what is the hard evidence that will help us decide the question for ourselves? Now remember, Jesus was asked by a lawyer in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? And what did, he, what did he respond? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So today we're going to focus more on the mind part of that commandment. So be thinking about that. So in other words, when we come to church, even though our focus is worship, faith, caring for the needs of others, we don't need to check our brains at the door, which is a very good thing. But before we get started, you know, my own personal congrats to all the high school grads. Nice job, guys. That's super. And to the people who graduated from college and grad school, way to go. Uh, as Wes mentioned, we have two daughters. Uh, uh, one of our daughters is going to be walking the aisle to uh, for ASU for a bachelor's degree, presuming finals go well. And we're very proud of her. Way to go, Becca. So, who am I? Well, think of me as Mr. Sharon. <laughs> From all indications, my wife does her very best to keep things humming around here, just like she does at home. Thanks, honey, for keeping us all organized. We appreciate that. And where am I from? Well, most of the time, it's in the back there, the room, in the, in the, kind of in the tech booth, where I spend time, you know, clicking the mouse, advancing the slides for the, the worship set and the sermon. Rolene's doing it this morning. Fantastic, thank you. And why am I up here? Good question. <laughs> a few weeks ago in 1825, we discussed the reliability of Scripture. You know, why should we trust the Bible? How was it that certain books came to be included in the Bible, but there were certain other ancient books that didn't make the grade? Well, how, how did that come to be? So when the three-week sermon series came up, Wes asked if I would mind sharing a few of the lessons that we talked about in 1825 here in Big Church. So, here we are. And Wes, thanks so much for helping me prepare because I've never put a sermon together before. It was kind of fun. Okay, when was the last time you took a class that involved a textbook? I mean, the students are saying, well, like right now. And if you're like me, maybe you've taken a night class at SCC or PVCC or have used a book as a study guide for a small group or a men's Bible study or women's Bible study. But what I have right here is a stack of books that I've used over, the recent, over a few recent years. The most new of the books is about six years old. The oldest one, this blue one, 60 years old. That's really old. If you were going to take a biochemistry class at ASU this fall, you would not use this book. Why is that? It's a good book. It's a great book. Well-known authors, one of the standards. But it was published in 2008. And when any book is published for an undergrad science class, it is out of date as soon as it's published. You know, the professors have to go and say, okay, well, the book says this, but actually it's this. They have to correct it because new discoveries are being made all the time. And actually, the students are probably rolling their eyes a little bit because most books these days in all levels of the edu education system from high school up are published electronically. So you don't have to carry around this giant stack in your backpack anymore. You know, you get your iPad or your tablet. And the publishers are able to update the textbooks as new information comes to light. So that's very useful. 
So in biochemistry, for instance, let's suppose that you are interested in next-gen DNA sequencing or maybe whole exome genetic screening, you know, very, two very popular topics. You couldn't use this textbook because in 2008, those two topics hadn't even been discovered yet. You'd really be out of date in your class this fall, so don't do that. <laughs> so that's the way it goes with textbooks. That's the kind of conventional wisdom about textbooks. But what about this book here? The Bible. We got a slide of the Bible, I think. Yeah, there it is. Is this the most recent edition that we have? Does God periodically add new verses, you know, to keep us up to date? That, there's a, that's a big no on that one, by the way. It does not happen. The difference between the Bible and these textbooks we've been talking about is that we believe that when the Bible was written, it was the perfect, inspired Word of God with no need for updates, corrections, or insertion of new material, unlike our textbook friends over here. And that's one of the reasons some people have a problem with the Bible. You know, how can you believe in something that's so old? I mean, really? 2,000 years ago? Longer even for the Old Testament? So with the Word of God, the question becomes, is the Bible we have today, this thing, or the one that you may be carrying, is that what the original authors wrote? Can we trust that that's true? Wouldn't you want to know that what we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same exact words that God originally spoke to Moses, to the prophets, to David, in the New Testament, to Peter and Paul? And how does our modern Bible stack up? Can we trust it? Has it been consistent over the centuries? You know, has it been pretty much the same, or has it changed a whole lot? Well, Troy started us off last week in this series answering the question, what does the Bible say about itself? And you remember that one of the key scriptures there was 2 Timothy 3.16. I think we have it here. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. And another verse we're going to talk about this week, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's not a man thing, it's a God thing. And how about Joshua 23, 14? Here Joshua is very old. He's already led the children of Israel into the promised land, and he knows that his days are numbered. And what does he say? And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. God was consistent. He, he did what he said he was going to do. Okay. Well, what does history tell us about the reliability of the Bible? And where would you go to look that up? I mean, can you Google that? Is there a Wikipedia page somewhere that lists all the facts and figures? I, you know, that's, that's a tough one. Well, fortunately, I found this book. This is a really good one. It's called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think we have a picture of it somewhere. By Josh McDowell. And it's a very good source book because it lists many references for all the particulars of history, of science, of archaeology concerning the validity of the Bible. So if you want something to write a paper or to give a talk or just talk to your friends about the Bible, this is a winner. The new evidence that demands verdict. This morning we're going to focus on the reliability of the New Testament, even though the facts are similarly impressive for the Old Testament. We just don't have time to cover both of those. 
So what are the tests for reliability of ancient literature? We have a crumbly old manuscript in a glass case in a library or a museum, you know, humidity controlled so it won't disintegrate. How do we decide if that is close to what the original author wrote? Well, a man named Chauncey Sanders, there he is right there, he's a professor of military history at the United States Air Force University in uh, Alabama. He wrote a book called Introduction to Research in English Literary History, and he lists three basic tests for determining historical reliability. The bibli bibliographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. Okay, so we're gonna look at each of these in turn and see how the Bible stacks up, how the New Testament comes out. So the bibliographical test. This asks the question, since we do not have the original documents, how reliable are the copies that we have in regard to the number of manuscripts and the time interval between the original and the current existing copies. Now remember that for a number of centuries there were no scanners, no photocopiers, no printing presses. You know, Paul wrote one of the epistles and the people in the church where he was said, wow, this is great stuff. The people in Thessalonica need to hear this. What are we going to do? Well, we've got to copy it. So get another piece of manuscript or parchment or papyrus and with pen and ink, you start copying letter by letter, line by line. It's all by hand, all individual. And you've got to do that several times for all the different places that need to hear it. The first thing that was actually published to the printing press, people know this one probably, it was the Latin version of the Bible by Johannes Gutenberg in 1455. So more than 1,300 years after the time of the New Testament. So a long time before we had printing presses. Now, it's really interesting because it turns, as it turns out, the words of the New Testament were the most frequently copied of any of the works of ancient literature. So the most commonly copied non-scriptural work of ancient literature was Homer's Iliad. Now, it's maybe that some of you read that in high school or college. I had to read it in college myself. As it turns out, by our little chart here, we have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. You know, again, all of these were written by hand, too, by some guy in a little room, you know, for a long time. That's a pretty good number, 643. Well, what about the New Testament? There are now more than 5,686 copies of the Greek New Testament in manuscript form. Well, sorry, Homer. What about Latin copies? The old Latin is called Latin Vulgate, and there are more than 10,000 Latin New Testament copies. What about other languages other than Latin and, and, and Greek? In other languages, we have more than 9,300. So if you add all these up, that means that we have more than 25,000 copies of the New Testament in ancient manuscript form. That's very impressive. Now, the weight of the number of manuscripts alone cannot be overemphasized. This guy, John Warwick Montgomery, who's a noted uh, lawyer, professor, theologian, prolific author says, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip to obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. So if you have a problem with the New Testament manuscripts and say, I don't know, 25,000, not sure about that. If you doubt the New Testament, you have to throw away all of the ancient Greek writers, all the Latin ones, all the Roman ones, everything, because the New Testament is head and shoulders in terms of number of manuscripts over those.
Okay, well, what about the time gap between the original documents and the current manuscripts? The ones used to arrive at the Bible we have today. Well, there's this guy, J. Harold Greenlee, Harvard PhD, Fulbright Fellow at, at Oxford, so no slouch. And he writes, the oldest known manuscripts of most of the Greek classical authors are dated a thousand years or more after the author's death, long time. The time interval for the Latin authors is somewhat less, down to a minimum of three centuries in the case of Virgil. In the case of the New Testament, however, two of the most important manuscripts were written within 300 years after the New Testament was completed. And some virtually complete New Testament books, as well as extensive fragmentary manuscripts of many parts of the New Testament, date back to one century from the original writings. So take a look at this uh, chart we have. It's a little small, sorry about that. But there we see Homer up on the top with his 643. But the, most, the oldest version we have of the Iliad is 400 years older than the time of the author. Wow. And then look at some of the other Greek authors there, Herodotus, uh, Thucydides, Plato. Those are more than 1,000 years. So you want to see what Plato really wrote? Sorry, the closest you can get to him is, is 1,300 years. That's a huge time gap. Amazing. So Ravi Zacharias, who's another theologian, concludes in real terms... The New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents. We can do the next slide. The time span between the events and the documents and the variety of documents available. There's nothing in the ancient manuscript evidence to match the textual availability integrity of the New Testament. Fabulous. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, as believers, we have nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to the historical basis for our faith. The New Testament is the most well-established piece of ancient literature on the planet. No one's going to argue that. So, that's the first test that Professor Sanders gives us. The second way to decide whether we can trust a piece of ancient literature, like the New Testament, is the internal evidence test. Well, what's that? Professor Gleason Archer, he founded Suffolk Law School in Boston. And this guy was really impressive. He learned more than 30 ancient languages. Holy cow, that's incredible. And then he taught biblical criticism for more than 30 years. His main book was called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. What is that? Well, anytime anyone would criticize the Bible, would say, that's an error, that's a contradiction, that doesn't stack up, don't believe that, he would include this in his, in his encyclopedia and show exactly why the Bible was true and the criticism was not valid. So he writes concerning the internal consistency of the Bible. There is a good and sufficient answer in Scripture itself to refute every charge that has ever been leveled against it. But this is only to be expected from the kind of book the Bible asserts itself to be, the inscripturation of the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. He goes on to say, I have dealt with one apparent uh, discrepancy after another and have studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and the evidence of linguistics, archaeology, and science. My confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified and strengthened by the discovery that almost every problem in Scripture that has been discovered by man from ancient times until now has been dealt with in a completely satisfactory manner by the biblical text itself, or else by objective archaeologic information. So he says, I've looked into this. I've spent my career looking at these apparent contradictions, and so far not one of them has proved to be valid. It's pretty impressive. So, 
The other thing that we need to remember is that the New Testament writers used primary sources. Well, what in the world does that mean? Let's look at the New Testament in a few verses to see what that does mean. First, Luke 1, 1 through 3. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke here is saying, if you really want to know what happened, I was there, and I'm going to write it down and be very careful about recording my observations. Eyewitness account. Let's look at 2 Peter 1.16. Peter did the same thing. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of our coming Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter says, I can tell you what happened because I saw it. Let's look at 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John was the same way. I was there. I spent time with him. I know what happened. I listened. I heard. I saw it. And then Acts 22, we go back to uh, Luke. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Well, how did, they, how did they themselves know? They saw him. They saw the miracles. They were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They saw the water turned into wine. They saw the blind man receive his sight, the lame man get up and walk. So it wasn't things that they were saying, well, what was that again? What did Jesus allegedly do? No, I saw it happen. I believe it. And finally, John 19.35. He who saw it has borne witness. John's talking about himself here. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you may also believe. And the last one here is Luke 3. Notice the details of history and geography here that Luke puts in this passage. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. You know, he's going on and on about these, who was the ruler of what and where and all these, these places and, and names. Why does he do that? He does it to put the New Testament on firm uh, historical grounds. You can look and see when these leaders were in the Middle East. You can see that these places actually existed and that the New Testament events correlates with what we know of history from other sources. A man named F.F. F. Bruce, who was a former professor of Bible criticism and exegesis at University of Manchester in England says, the early preachers of the gospel knew the value of first-hand testimony and appealed to it time and again. So, not only are New Testament documents internally consistent, they are filled with eyewitness accounts of the events they describe. Now, one of the guys in our small group here at North is Greg Gillis. He's right back there near the back row. Now, Greg is a respected attorney here in Scottsdale, and I asked him yesterday at the men's breakfast, what constitutes credible testimony in court? And he thought for two or three seconds, and then he said, corroborating witnesses. Corroborating witnesses, what's that? Well, that means more than one person describing the same events and their stories confirm each other. They match. You can trust them because they're independent people telling what happened and their stories are the same. 
In our other small group, uh, we have a, a Maricopa County Superior Court judge, the Honorable Michael J. Herod. And Judge Herod, I asked him last Thursday night, says that the most convincing testimony in a trial is a compilation of eyewitnesses. Now that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write their accounts of spending three years with Jesus, what they heard, what they saw, what they interacted, and all of those stories blend together beautifully with no contradiction and no error. That's eyewitness account or eyewitness testimony. So the final attest to establish the ancient work as legitimate, according to Professor Sanders, is the external evidence test. Let's go back to Professor Montgomery. He puts the question this way. Do other historical materials confirm or deny the internal testimony provided by the documents themselves? So in other words, what sources are there apart from the literature under analysis, that's the New Testament, that substantiate its accuracy, its reliability, and its authenticity? Well, Norman Geisler wrote a nice summary of this in, uh, in his book, and he says, it's a little small, but the facts speak for themselves. The primary sources for the life of Christ are the four Gospels. However, there are considerable reports from non-Christian sources that supplement and confirm the Gospel accounts. These come largely from Greek, Roman, Jewish, and Samaritan sources of the first century, such as just Josephus, who is a Roman Jewish uh, historian. In brief, these sources confirm that, one, Jesus was from Nazareth, two, he lived a wise and virtuous life, three, he was crucified in Palestine under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at the time of Passover, being considered the Jewish king, four, he was believed by his disciples to have been raised from the dead three days later, five, his enemies acknowledged that he performed unusual feats they called sorcery, which we would call miracles, six, his small band of disciples multiplied rapidly, spreading even as far as Rome. Seven, his disciples denied polytheism, that there are many gods, lived moral lives, and worshiped Christ as divine. Do those things sound familiar? Well, they should. Because this picture from entirely non-biblical sources confirms the view of Christ presented in the New Testament Gospels. There's unique corroboration, external evidence of the truth of the New Testament. But wait, there's more. What do discoveries down through the years in archaeology tell us? You know, this is Indiana Jones stuff. This is really cool. Well, in fact, the stones are crying out. Let's look at what respected archaeologists say. Okay, Nelson Gluck, who is he? Well, he's a renowned Jewish archaeologist, says, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Wow, that's pretty impressive. How about W.F. Albright? Well, who in the world is that? Well, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, the authorities said, well, who can we get that's highly respected in the archaeological community that we would believe what they would say? Well, how about Albright? Albright is the American archaeologist who validated, authenticated the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he says, the excessive skepticism showed toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the Bible as a source of history. So here's one of the most famous archeologists on the planet who's saying, you wanna verify your history? Look at the Bible. It'll tell you if it's right or wrong. Merle Unger, Old Testament professor at Dallas Theological Seminary said, 
The role which archaeology in performing in New Testament research, as well as the Old Testament, is expediting scientific study, balanced critical theory, illustrating, elucidating, supplementing, and authenticating historical and cultural backgrounds, constitutes one bright spot in the future of criticism of the ancient text. So if you're looking at people criticizing the Bible, saying, ah, I'm not sure the history was right, I'm not sure the archaeology is right, archaeology is our friend because it does a fantastic job of showing how accurate the Bible is. Miller Burroughs, uh, professor emeritus at Yale Divinity School, the excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from a careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. I find the exact thing, little parenthesis, in evolutionary biology. You know, the scientists, the evolutionary scientists aren't, aren't bothered so much by the science of creationism as they are by the fact that we bring a supernatural entity, God, into the equation. That drives them crazy. Okay, on the whole, however, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. So the scriptural record is sound as corroborated by archaeology. But rather than just talk about generalities, I thought it would be good to share a few specific examples. So some specific examples from archaeology. One, the pavement. We have a picture of the pavement. Okay, you see all these squares up here on the floor? The arches are new above, but it's underground this pavement area. For centuries, there was no historical record of the court where Jesus was tried by Pontius Pilate. It was named Gabbatha, or the pavement, and mentioned in John 19.13. William Albright, he's our Dead Sea Scroll guy, in the Archaeology of Palestine, shows that this was the court of Antonia, the Roman military headquarters in Jerusalem. It was left buried when the city was rebuilt in the time of Hadrian. Who's Hadrian? I had to look him up. He's the 14th emperor of Rome, and his dates are A.D. 76 to A.D. 138. So he was just a few, a few decades after the time of Jesus. And this court was not discovered until 1948. So here John 19 mentions the pavement where the trial took place. We all read it and say, okay. There's not a word of it in any historical document other than that. There's no archaeologic evidence until 1900 years later, when they dig it up and say, oh, this is where that took place. Pretty impressive. The second is the Pool of Bethesda. And you can see these walls here with way down on the bottom this little pool area. Now what is that? Well, the Pool of Bethesda is another site with no record except in the New Testament. It can now be identified with a fair measure of certainty in the northeast quarter of the old city of Jerusalem in the first, AD, first century AD, where traces of it were discovered in the course of excavations near the Church of St. Anne in 1888. So same thing. More than 1,800 years later, here it is, exactly what the Bible says. And finally, we have the Nazareth Decree. There's this slab of rock here, and there's characters on it. Those are uppercase Greek letters, or unseal letters we call them. A slab of stone was found in Nazareth in 1878 inscribed with a decree from Emperor Claudius. So his dates are A.D. 41 to 54, so a little before Hadrian. That no graves should be disturbed or bodies extracted or moved. Well, this kind of decree is not so uncommon, but the startling fact is that, it, is that here, quote, the offender shall be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of a sepulcher, unquote. What's that all about? 
Uh, the likely explanation is that Claudius, having heard of the Christian doctrine of resurrection and Jesus' empty tomb while investigating the riots in Jerusalem in AD 49, decided not to let any such report service again, not on his watch. So that would make sense in light of the Jewish argument that the body had been stolen, Matthew 28, 11 through 15. So this is early testimony to the strong and persistent belief in that area of the world that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's great. Really a nice piece of evidence there. Okay, in a few minutes, Aaron and the band are going to come back and lead us in another worship song. But before they do that, I'd like us all to remember these three take-home points. First, the Bible claims to be the Word of God. It says it is in, in the pages of Scripture itself. Two, the Bible is more reliable than any other ancient book by a long shot. We could be proud of that. We don't have to shrink away from uh, criticism in that regard. And finally, God wants to use the scriptures to change our hearts. And we're going to be talking about that a lot next week. But it's important to, to mention that to begin with. Thank you.